Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andro. On Sunday, I went to the corner shop. I picked up a chocolate bar. The price sticker on it read £1. When I took it to the till, the shopkeeper, let's call him Jeremy Hunt, said that will be £1.5p. When I questioned this, he explained that with inflation as it is, the chocolate bar should have gone up to £1.10p, but for his very special offer just for me. I just put 5p in your pocket, young man, he smiled. Is this really how our Chancellor understands inflation? On Sunday, he said that inflation of 5% is putting money in people's pockets. Or is it that he's betting very few of the people listening understand it? My guest today is here to address precisely that knowledge gap. He's been economic special advisor to both Theresa May and Vince Cable, a former Financial Times leader writer, and now a senior fellow at the August Institute for Government. Welcome back to the bunker, Giles Wilkes. Great to to be here, Alex. Great to be here. Giles, a, a basic textbook would describe inflation as a decrease in the purchasing power of money. Hmm. Do you have a favorite, even plainer, practical way to explain to me, Alex, an eight-year-old? And hopefully somewhat better than the one Jeremy Hunt tried to sell at you. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, well, prices go up and down all the time. I mean, you like you remember... Uh, that wonderful movie, Trading Places, where there's a, a frost in the orange crop. So oranges are very scarce and orange juice goes up in price. So you have all those sorts of things happening all the time. Inflation is when pretty much all the prices start going up at the same time because there's some big common cause behind price rises. Now, the most common one is that we've all got more money in our pockets. And if you print too much money, and there's still the same amount of goods. More money divided by the same amount of goods means more price for each goods or each of the goods or services. But you can have other reasons like Russia invades Ukraine. The price of gas goes up eight times and everyone needs to use gas in some form or other. So everybody's mm. price goes up. So inflation is just as simple as that. It's just all of the prices going up at once rather than one or two of them for their own idiosyncratic reasons. And, and so basically the same amount of money can buy less stuff. Exactly. So you're sitting there looking at your money um, as you experience in that corner shop with your friend Jeremy, and what you think you can get for £1, you now need £1.10 or £1.5 to do it. So your money, yeah. as he would put it, the purchasing power is going down, and you know you become poorer, I guess, if you've still got mm. the same amount of cash in your wallet. Yes, the, uh, the classic uh, uh, economics explanation involving chocolate bars is usually uh, to do with a Freddo that used to cost 10p, it is now 25p. And so the simplest way to understand it, I guess, is if you had a pound in 2005, you would come out of the shop with 10 Freddos. And if you go to the shop today, you will come out of the shop with just four of them. Yeah. Um, now, explanations of inflation often go together with lots of acronyms and terminology. So can we explain those a little bit? What is CPI? Now, that is the Consumer Price Index. And an index is basically a collection of all of the prices put together, weighted for how much we spend on each one. So we spend maybe, I don't know, 10% of our typical wallet on um, restaurants and things. So that will have a certain weighting. We spend only like 20% of it on sporting goods. And so they'll take all of these different things. The Office for National Statistics will go around all the shops and all the 
all the outlets everywhere providing anything that goes into that index, measure the prices as regularly as they can, and effectively work out how much, once you weight them for how much we're spending on each one, the whole index goes up. So it's normally set at 100 for a particular year, like 2015. And it's when mm. that index goes up, say from 100 in 2022 to 105 in 2023, that they say you've got 5% inflation because that index went up by 5%. So that's the right. consumer price index. And, and what about RPI? Well, this is an older one, which um, it sounds like a similar thing because it's called the retail price index. So it's all of the things being bought through retail outlets. Now, over the years, they changed it from RPI to CPI for most purposes for various technical and other reasons. One of them is um, the way RPI is put together is different from CPI. It's more of a, I think it's everything's added up arithmetically rather than geometrically. And I don't want to bore people with the significance of that, but it means that they move in different ways when prices change. And they have slightly different constituents in them. Uh, so they're both effectively trying to do the same thing. I think typically RPI goes up a little faster um, mm -hmm. over the years, but really we're talking about the same basic concept. So let me ask you this, Giles. If, let's say, the war in Ukraine was a significant factor, suddenly a lot of raw materials, a lot of food, grain, oil, a lot of fuel just shot up in price. Um, if uh, uh, inflation works on an annual basis, is measured on an annual basis, how come in March this year, it didn't just plummet back to normal levels. That is a really excellent question. Now, for a start, gas prices, they shot up absolutely hectically. And I wish I had a chart in front of me, but they went up from something like sort of whatever the units were, 10 to something like 400 at certain points. And so they came down, but they came down to amounts that were still significantly higher than we used to be used to paying. So mm -hmm. I think the typical gas price per kilowatt hour was like, I don't know, three or four pence uh, five or six years ago. And it might have gone up to, you know, seven or even 10 pence. And then, right. so it comes down to sort of eight or nine. So um, it came down, but not as much. Now, that's one of the reasons. One of the other reasons, though, is that companies hedge ahead. So they buy their gas on a long-term contract, so they don't get suddenly blindsided. And those ones that don't, when something like Ukraine happens, they just go bust because they don't have any gas available and they can't pass on the cost. And a lot of gas companies went bust for that very reason, energy yeah. companies. So maybe some of the effect is going to come through the system as those prices feed through the contracts. But ultimately, I don't think we've seen the gas price come all the way back down uh, to where it was before. And given that we've turned off the world's biggest gas producer and one of the pipes has been blown up, it will probably never go back there. So the typical household's overall energy bill, which was around 1,200 quid when we were fretting about it under Theresa May, went up to, well, it would have gone up to four or 5,000 pounds last autumn if it hadn't been for the government's help, went up to two and a half thousand. It's come down to rate maybe 1,900 pounds, mm. but it's never going to come back to 1,200 in my view. Right. But I guess what I'm asking is those input costs, they don't have to come all the way back down for inflation to go yeah. back to normal levels. Okay. They can just yeah. stop rising exponentially. Yes, that's true. No, you're right. So that will, 
that effect of the gas price will start taking away from inflation. You're right. So you might have something, one of the other indices you might have asked me about, the producer price index, all the things yep. that producers uh, uh, need in, in sort of making the goods that we all buy and sell. That might start becoming a, even a negative index. The trouble is there's a lot of other things that go into inflation. And yeah. since those gas prices and energy prices and food prices have been going up, a lot of other prices have been going up, like basically the price of services. So that's the, the cost to just, you know, of shops and hairdressers and consultants and lawyers. Now, this would normally be going up at about the same level as people's wages. And wages have gone up from like 3 4% to 5 6 7 8 mm -hmm. 9 10%. So the persistence that you're describing there is to a large degree caused by the fact that we've now got wages rising at much higher levels than we're used to. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, the, there's an argument to go on a tangent, running side by side with a sort of the doctor's industrial action about which is the better measure for calculating inflation, especially when it comes to um, asking for a salary raise. Do you have a view of whether CPI or RPI is the more appropriate measure when government is looking at what salary it needs to give public servants? Well, I mean, this is a political argument. So anyone right. in that argument will say, I want to go against the higher one. The reason the technicians would probably choose things more like CPI is I think CPI reflects the fact that if goods go up in price, we're all intelligent consumers and we shift away from the really expensive ones. So if you're in a situation where for some reason restaurant meals have tripled and normal food prices haven't, you start eating at home more. And the mm. CPI index takes that into account more than the RPI index does, I think. Right. So some people will say, well, therefore, you should choose the lower of the two, which will generally be CPI. It's a technical argument. And some people yeah. will say that the point is that inflation thing is for the whole economy. Individuals will say, hold it, my personal rate of inflation is much higher because I buy this or that thing. And I'm in this or that geography, say, or I have London rents to worry about. So the problem is to any one person being treated to the average will often feel unfair and they'll say, no, I want another one. But technically, I think the statisticians would defend the CPI more than the IPI. Right. Now, another term we hear quite often is core inflation. Um, mm. uh, what is that? And why are experts a little bit worried about UK core inflation? So core inflation, if we step back, the Bank of England has a job to try to get inflation back to where it should be, as mandated in this letter that the Chancellor sends in every now and again, uh, sends to the governor. So uh, that's 2%. He's meant to get to 2% inflation. Now, he can't control a lot of the things we've been talking about. He can't control whether the gas price is going to be high or low, or whether Vladimir Putin is going to do more to the grain markets mm -hmm. and make them go up or down. Some of these things are what economists would therefore call exogenous. They're factors beyond our control that wave around to a certain degree randomly. But some of it is w clearly within his control. Otherwise, why are we asking him to control inflation in the first place? And that is caused by you know, the domestic conditions of this economy. And that's about him putting purchasing power into the economy, the ability to buy goods and services. Now, the basic case for why he has to act and has had to act for the last 18 months is that that core engine pumping spending power into the economy that's driven inflation above where they're comfortable to 5 or 6 or 7% rather than 2 is um, that's running too hot. So it effectively, he thinks he needs to raise interest rates in order to cut that purchasing power. Now, that refers to the, the core inflation that isn't 
including all of those different exogenous factors. Yeah. And those are the ones that he thinks he can sort of control more directly by playing around with interest rates and monetary policy more generally. So it's meant to capture the what's sort of underlying all of that external noise that is coming from things like the grain markets and the Ukraine and the OPEX behavior and all of that sort of thing. The trouble is it's more of an art than a science. What should count as core? Economists are always like trying to come up with new definitions to strip out the thing they think doesn't tell the story they want to hear. So the crucial thing is when people in the economy decide to make decisions, they might not say, let's look at the core inflation. They might yeah. look at the headlines. So there's always some controversy about whether you should be looking at core, the headline number that we've all been speaking about. To wrap up the explainer section, can we very briefly touch on shrinkflation and skimpflation? <laughs> well, this is, a, I mean, shops, retailers, businesses in general don't like changing prices all that often. Changing prices, particularly raising them, annoys your consumers. And for behavioural reasons, we hate that. So we see that they've put up the price and we sort of feel like going and shopping elsewhere. Uh, a better way some of them think, is to sell you, for the same price, less stuff. That's shrinkflation. So you go out for a, like, a, a, a bag of um, sweets and you get less sweets in the bag. Mm. So that's shrinkflation. Now, it's clearly exploiting a, a sort of behavioural bias. And it's probably annoying as hell to statisticians who now don't only have to go around checking the prices on the packet of sweets, but counting the sweets inside the packet too. <laughs> so that's extremely irritating. But it maybe is a practical way that they can subtly raise prices on the consumer without having to go through the faff of trying to work out a new pricing strategy and annoying everybody. But really, we shouldn't be fooled about it. Um, I believe skimpflation is the same, except it's quality. So you're going to a restaurant and you're expecting the same services you got before and you're being served by a 14-year-old waiter who doesn't know what the filet mignon yeah. is, and yet you're still paying the same price for the, the restaurant meal. Now that is, you're getting worse quality. So it's in the separate dimension, but you're getting a worse deal. And these are all signs that the economy is kind of at its bursting point and businesses are having to offer you something worse for the same price rather than, you know, a higher price for the same thing. Mm. Yes, I think that the time is fast approaching when I open a bag and find one what's it. Um, <laughs> a dismal now, moment. <laughs> um, going back to the dispute with doctors, government claims that paying public sector workers in line with inflation will cause a wage price spiral. That sounds dangerous. What is it? Well, a wage price spiral is this is summoning the ghosts of the 1970s when you did have this situation that there was a shock, the energy price shock. Everyone noticed that prices were going up 15, 20%. Everyone started asking for 15 or 20% wage rises. The coal miners in particular got 30, 40% at certain times. That contributed to the cost of the whole economy going up. And so everybody's expectation was, hey, if I want to stay ahead, I need 30% or I need 20%. And so the prices go up and wages feed it and the expectations all work together. Now, that is the ghost they're trying to wave in front of us. I don't think you can decently apply that same model when it was an incredibly tight economy dominated by these big, big union-dominated industries like yeah. steel and so forth. I don't think you can simply apply it to a small subsector like the doctors. And in particular, you've got to bear in mind the scale of the situation here. The doctors are, you know, 
the total wage bill of those doctors will be a few billion pounds. Yeah. We are in a two trillion pound economy. So if the job of the Bank of England is fundamentally to deal with the entire envelope of spending and stop it rising at the wrong pace and say they, they want it to rise at 5%, not 8 the the amount that the doctors are adding to the purchasing power isn't sufficient to drive inflation on its own. They might mm. worry that if you start with the doctors, every other industry looks at the doctors and says, well, if they're getting 8%, then I deserve it too. Um, however, we're in a competitive economy. Each industry will pay as much as it can afford to. And if the purchasing power isn't there from the Bank of England, then people won't be able to just get what the doctors are being paid just because they read about it in the Daily Mail. So the idea that there's a kind of sympathetic contagion that spreads through the whole economy and then everybody has to, um, uh, has to get paid the same amount is, is, is really not the case anymore. Uh, let's go back to that Hunt statement now. Um, because there is quite a lot to unpack, he claims that cutting inflation to 5% puts money in people's pocket more than a cut in income tax. Right, first of all, can government cut inflation? Uh, the government can cut inflation. I mean, you just send the economy into a recession and sooner or later inflation will fall. It's not necessarily the thing you want to do, though. Um, the government as a whole is responsible for inflation. As I said, the Chancellor sends a letter to the governor and the governor messes around with interest rates and so on. But the trick he seems to be playing is, is, is the difference between inflation itself falling and prices falling. So inflation being at 10%, is obviously going to make you poorer, all things being equal, the inflation being at 5%. But you're still poorer if your wages haven't risen. Your money still isn't going as far as it was before. Hmm. So obviously, we should be pleased that he is going for a lower inflation rate. But that's, that, you know, that, that's what we expect all of our governments to. We've been signed up to a 2% inflation for 30 years. So the way the government is making a sort of a special statement of it, as if it's their own particular idea, is, is slightly bizarre. Hmm. Why is the Bank of England target set at 2%, by the way? Is there a, a economic, historical, or both uh, the reasons for it being there? There isn't. And, um, you know, you'll have a variety of opinions from the sort of hard money men who hark back to the gold standard of the 1920s saying it should be zero. Everything else is debauching the currency in a, an uh -huh. absolute sin to um, people who are much more relaxed about it and say, you know, we were a perfectly fine functioning economy when, when inflation was 5%. So two is an arbitrary number chosen between zero and something unacceptably higher. <laughs> and um, I guess it's not zero because you sometimes need the economy to adjust and Zero is a really hard number. People do not like to take wage cuts, for example. Yeah. Sometimes the right thing to do is to have wages falling a little bit behind inflation and economic resources being reallocated that way. But, you know, it's somewhere low is what they want it, but not zero. Yeah. But they, you can read whole papers arguing about whether it should be two or four. But, you know, it, it's an arbitrary number we all kind of agree on is the best you can say. We have a government that tends to take credit when things go right and say it's nothing to do with us when things go wrong. Inflation being as high as it is, what would you say is in percentage terms because of poor economic policy? So set aside whether the Bank of England acted a little bit too late, the external factors, just as a instinctive expert opinion, do you think there have been things that the government did wrong economically that have fueled 
uh, even to a small degree, the inflation we're seeing? And is the government taking action right now that is actively helping deflate that? I think there's a one big resounding yes, which is I think Brexit has made things worse. I mean, it, it's very hard to pin any particular thing because, you, as you say, there's thousands of factors that come together to make an economy yeah. and cause yeah. inflation. But if you wanted to do something that made your economy worse and therefore you less, get less for the same amount of money, cutting yourself off to a certain degree trade-wise, having less yeah. access to labour, less access to um, co competition overseas, that would be worse for your inflation. And this is why we thought we were suffering in the 60s and 70s worse than our European competitors. Mm. We didn't have their sort of vibrant larger market to deal with. So that would be number one. How much that is, like whether it's 1% or 2%, yeah. who knows? And people will try to argue about that for ages. But our inflation seems to be a bit worse, and I would put some of it down to that. Some of it will be reasons we might applaud. So if the government had decided not to raise the national minimum wage as hard as yeah. it has, that would have lowered inflation too. It might have a sympathetic effect on lots of different industries too. You might argue about whether it's a, it would be a great thing to try to get the poor to bear the burden of bringing down inflation. But you could say that that has caused inflation to be a little higher because it will mm -hmm. also set a standard for a lot of other industries. They'll look at the national minimum wage and go, well, that seems to be what the government thinks is about right. Um, but otherwise, I think in general... I would say underinvesting can cause the economy to be weak and inflation to be a little bit too high. And I think yeah. the government over the years has, um, has fostered an environment that has made it harder for businesses to invest and do the sorts of things that help them to expand production without raising prices so much. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to find out whether looking back at austerity, which has its critics, and to an extent, the results of which we are seeing now with crumbling infrastructure, literally crumbling infrastructure, followed by Brexit, followed by all those incredibly inelegant uh, changes of government and policy. Is there, is there an objective assessment of the economic performance of the Tories of the last 13 years Gosh, you've given me one of the toughest. <laughs> Thanks a lot for that Sorry, one. Sorry, uh, Yes, yeah, I mean, I've got to be the one who says this has been an absolute triumph for 13 years and 13 more years now. Um, okay, and bear in mind, I was in the government for four years, so I should try to do my little bit of defending. Uh, so, okay, here's my best effort. Uh, they inherited a deficit of like £160 billion, which back in 2010 was no small amount. So most people agreed that it had to be dealt with one way or another. And... In my view, they went about it too hard and they didn't raise taxes enough and they cut spending too far. Mm -hmm. uh, but by 2016, before the um, referendum, it was approximately dealt with. They had convinced the public, let's say, that that was the major challenge of our era was to get rid of that deficit and then have a clean slate and move on and have a fresh political argument about what we should be using that space for. And you could, if you were that team before Brexit, say that was what we promised the voters bought that promise mm -hmm. and we kind of delivered it. And also, everyone said that we would crash the economy if we did it too hard. Some of the initial data came out saying that we were in a recession. Actually, we weren't. And unemployment kept falling. Employment kept rising. 
And now we have unemployment down at 3.5%. And this is the big difference from the 70s. Back in the 70s, we had inflation at the same time as unemployment kept rising yeah. relentlessly. Yeah. And we were still not dealing with inflation when unemployment was at 3 million. I remember growing up that it felt like Britain was broken and inflation was in double digits and unemployment was at 3 million. They would say, no, we got... Now everybody can get a job. It's incredible. My my um, 18 and 21-year-old daughters can both go out and get great jobs. So the economy has got something right about it. It seems to be easier to get jobs and we're not in some situation where um, people the long-term unemployment is a really major concern. So I would say they would point to that and say that really, really matters to people. Yeah. But I would say, coming back to the topic of this podcast – Inflation is the clearest sign that you've got something really wrong. You've mm. you've mismanaged the economy. You're you're running things badly, and as we saw this time last year, when you do it really really badly and you seem to get your priorities wrong, it spirals. People start saying, "Well, if you're not able to control inflation, I don't want to lend to you, and if you're not able to borrow off the markets, then we're worried you're going to start printing money to fund yourself, and then I'm worried about more inflation." And unbelievably. After 30 years of us seeming not to be that kind of a country, we had the brief image of Britain becoming one of those basket case countries that simply cannot control its circumstances, mm, mm. cannot control its finances. And that, for me, is so much worse than the, um, than the good job they seem to do on the labour market, which, to revert to my other self, criticising that government, they inherited a great labour market, great labour institutions, yeah. great back-to-work schemes. Uh, People who are used to the idea that you've got to work, a pretty stingy welfare system is another reason why people go into work quite easily. So it's not something they should care about too much, but it is something. Giles Wilkes, um, thank you so much for explaining all this with your customary clarity and, and good humour in a conversation that ended up being much more wide-ranging than I had anticipated in a really delightful way. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on again. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I was going to say that's the price of a coffee, but by the time this airs, who knows how much a coffee will be. The way to crush the bourgeoisie is to grind them between the millstones of taxation and inflation. So thought Vladimir Lenin. Scarcely could he have foreseen that a conservative millionaire tech bro PM in capitalist Britain 2023 would produce the perfect version of those grinding millstones and that the task of rescuing the bourgeoisie would fall to a Labour leader. Interesting times we live in indeed. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was written and presented by Alexandre. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by Jay Bailey and me, Simon Williams. 
The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>